0: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.
1: This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly.
0: Hey, hey! welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here on Beer Sessions Radio, and it's Tuesday, May 10th, 2022. We'll be talking ab- about unions and, and working men's clubs and uh, things we haven't really talked too much about on, on the show. So let's go around the room and introduce each other. Uh, so I'm Jimmy
2: Carboni. Uh, Gerard? Hey, I'm Gerard Fagenberg. I'm a freelance beer writer. You can read me in Good Beer Hunting and The Takeout and locally here in, in Racket in Minneapolis, Minnesota.
0: That's great, man. Thanks so much. Last time we had you on, we were talking about your Jack Kerouac article and uh, that's how we got connected with Pete Brown. So looking forward to talking further. And Dave, my my pal. Hey,
3: yo, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Dave Infante. I am the, I'm an independent journalist. I publish Fingers a newsletter about uh, drinking in America, and I contribute as a writer at large to
0: VinePair. That's great, D- Dave. I've known you a long time, and I know that you you don't just cover um, pints and pours um, and hops. You 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 for a long time have covered um, some some issues, social issues as well, right?
3: Yeah, that's right. I'm not actually very like into beer in terms of the liquid. I'm much more interested in the culture. And the politics and the and the power that uh, you know the industry wields and how that how that works out. So definitely coming at it from a different angle than than some of my colleagues.
0: Well, th- thanks for joining us. It's going to be a fresh conversation. And Pete Brown, welcome. Hello, uh, I'm Pete Brown. Uh, I'm supposed to be a beer
4: writer, but I keep wandering off the subject. And uh, like Dave, I but my original uh fascination with beer was the role it plays in our culture and in, in society it took me a good few years to get more acquainted with the beverage and all the different styles and that kind of thing which which i do love um but beer and pubs in the uk and and bars in in other countries uh i'm, I'm fascinated by the social interaction and the and the roles they play
0: yeah well pete so you know many of us know some of your beer books um we've, we've had you on a couple of times already but going back like there was a beer a a, a book about Shakespearean pubs and yes. a, a few others. Why don't you just jog our, jog our memory a little bit?
4: Yeah, so that was uh, this book called Shakespeare's Local, uh, which was contentious for some people. Uh, the, the idea was to take one pub and look at it through uh, centuries of history, which uh, in London there's a handful of pubs uh, that all argue about who's the oldest and which was, the, which was here the first. And none of them are, you know, none of them are the same fabric of the building as they used to be. Bits get replaced all the time and that kind of thing. Um, but I was fascinated by the constant role that the pub plays. Uh, and there's a pub, the George Inn, in Southwark in South London. It's just south of of the River Thames, and it's been there since probably the the 15th century, 14th, 15th century. Uh, and I was fascinated by the the, the footprints, the, the number of people who've passed through there. Uh, Shakespeare used to live just around the corner from that pub. And uh, the Globe Theatre, where he uh, premiered plays such as Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet, uh, is kind of five minutes walk away. So I argued that Shakespeare must have drunk in this pub. There's no documentary evidence of it, there's no doc- documentary evidence that Shakespeare ever went to the toilet or <laughs> ate food but but he obviously did uh, you know, so the fact that there's no documentary evidence doesn't mean he didn't go there and so I argued like a detective and built the case that he he probably did drink there, uh, but not just him Charles Dickens Geoffrey uh, Chaucer uh, a whole bunch of different uh, Elizabeth Taylor, uh, Beyonce all the, all these people have drunk in this pub uh, and, and Most of the time, people have gone to the pub uh, have done the same thing. They've drunk the same beer, they've had the same conversations, they've made the same bad jokes, uh, and I just love that continuity through the
0: centuries. Yeah, you you always keep mentioning Geoffrey Chaucer, don't you? There was something you posted in Pellicle magazine about uh, something about Geoffrey Chaucer.
4: Yeah, so he basically is credited with inventing English literature. Uh, he, He wrote The Canterbury Tales... And he was the first person to use English rather than Latin uh, to, to, to try and create serious literature. And the Canterbury Tales is ostensibly uh, uh, a, a bunch of different people from medieval society who go on a pilgrimage, kind of like the package holiday of, of the Middle Ages. Uh, you go on a pilgrimage to a big cathedral. Uh, and it was, based, it was the proto-tourism uh, of the day. And... Along the way to Canterbury, they all tell each other tales. Uh, there's the, the knight's tale, the miller's tale, the wife of Bath's tale, uh, the, the the preacher's tale. And there's nothing about the journey to Canterbury at all. That's, that's not of interest. It's the stories they tell each other. And it's, it's, this is Chaucer giving a, a, a cross-section of, of society in, in the late 14th century. And the story begins in a pub. (laughs) It begins in the in the Tabard Inn, which was right next door to the George Inn. It it was the next building, uh, and stood there till 1876. And the reason Chaucer chose the pub uh, as the starting point because that was the only plausible place where all these different characters could meet. They would never interact in society normally, but the pub is this level, uh, this 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 place this everyone has in common. And that's still true today. And that's why Chaucer still is this touchstone for me english literature was born in a pub uh because the pub is the place where you see the whole of society
0: wow well that's a great intro and we're gonna lead into your new book club just tell us a little bit about it but but my, my first question is going to be why this book and um i know you have a lot to say about it
4: yeah i'll try and be brief um I, I first wanted to write it when I was <clears throat> writing my first book about the history of pubs and beer in Britain and there was a a, a kind of a, a touchstone which was in 1872 there was a licensing act uh, that limited the hours that pubs were allowed to open for the first time and this created outrage. Pubs had to close between midnight and 6am. I mean, how outrageous is that? Uh, and... Um, the, the, the problem was that private members clubs, uh, the, these elite places that MPs, judges, lawmakers uh, drank in instead of pubs, because they were private members clubs, they were exempted from the laws governing pubs. And people saw this as hypocrisy. Uh, they saw it as one rule for the, one rule for the governing uh, classes and one rule for ordinary people. And working men's clubs were 10 years old at that time. And they said, hey, well, we're private members clubs, too. And the lawmakers went, ah, shit. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and so the working men, working men, managed to kind of uh, twist the law and and get it to work in their advantage. And the upper classes were absolutely furious. They spent the next fifty years doing everything they could to close down working men's clubs. Um, and and that for me was a fascinating story. That. Um, uh, you know, we're obsessed with class in this country uh, and and the upper classes did everything they could to regulate uh, the behaviour of the working class as well, exempting themselves from those regulations. And workers' Clubs went, no, nah, we're not
0: going to let you do that. And then uh Gerard, when we last talked with Pete, we, we we went into this. I remember thinking I'd never thought about it too much, but I was like, wow, where I grew up in Massachusetts, you know, there were working men's clubs like Elks Clubs, and there were, you know, immigrant clubs like the Italian Garibaldi Club and you know the Warsaw Polish Club in, in, yeah, in Brooklyn. They it. Yeah. Yeah. Um what are you what are you thinking about today? Because you, you're in the, the 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 town that might be called the city of Unions, Minneapolis, and um, let's. What are you thinking?
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I really do appreciate the fact that living here, it does feel like a epicenter of a lot of the uh, modern labor movement in the United States. Actually, I was saying this earlier. That's sort of how I became aware. Of Dave's writing at Fingers was him talking about this failed union mid at Surly and then a later a successful one at Fair State. So that happening at the same time, we have uh Tattersall distilling fighting for a union and then other distilleries accepting unions, and then you have half Price books, first uh locations in the United States, unionizing in Minnesota. We now have two, maybe more by the time you hear this, unionized Starbucks. Um It's just like, it's amazing living in a post-industrial town. You know, I grew up in Massachusetts, but in uh, a town that is not very industrial, but moving to a mill town and seeing this sort of preservation of this working class mindset persisting through time and maintaining its hooks into the modern culture. You know, I live in Powderhorn Park, which for all intents and purposes is the, you know, the workman's heart and soul of the city. We just passed May Day, and it is a huge Uh, celebration here in my neighborhood i feel like i've been awakened to this so i think it's it's amazing to see this happen while my own working class consciousness is is opening and i also have to i have to thank pete for educating me so much on what happened in england to really lay the foundation for everything that's happening here it's like i feel like pete knows more about this stuff than i know about anything so it's, it's always so enlightening trying to find a juxtaposition for that
0: yeah So, uh, and Dave, um, the next step goes to you. I mean, you've been writing about unions. You you were on a podcast with the Kim Kelly. Um, You know, why unions? What happened to the, you know, craft beer and everybody was was welcome. Everyone was part of craft beer. Um, Why are unions coming up now?
3: Man, I mean, I think there's a bunch of reasons, as with any, you know, social and political movement, there's not just one inciting incident, but... um, you know, the craft beer industry in the U.S. is maturing. Um, it has, you know, slowed uh, in its growth over the course of, the, you know, the past decade and, and really has started to kind of find its footing as a, you know, an adolescent category. It's not, you know, it's not a bubble. It's not going bust in the way that maybe some people thought it would be uh, midway through, you know, the 2010s, but it's, you know, it's grown up, so to speak. And, and as the industry has grown up, workers have Uh, you know, realize like, man, we've got some things that we really like. We love this industry. We love making beer. We love, you know, the lifestyle that comes with it for the most part. But the working conditions kind of suck. Um, And a lot of times they really do. You know, the health insurance, if it exists through a brewery, is deficient and, you know, hard to afford. Um, The work is often quite physical. If you're in the production side of the brewery, Um, it's often – very unrewarding if you're, uh, you know, in the tap room um, where you're dealing with unruly customers and you're on the front lines. And certainly during COVID, um, we saw you know tap rooms uh, employees realize that they were getting the raw end of the deal. There, um, I've been interested in covering unions mostly because I worked at Thrill. When I was working at Thrills, I organized or I helped to organize um, Thrillist, Thrillist Union. Um, we, we organized a digital media, uh, union with the Writers Guild of America East, um, which is, you know, a big digital media organizer that first kind of got into the space, um, organizing Gawker, rest in peace. Um, but, you know, I was... As I was starting to become more class conscious and understand the dynamics between labor and capital and how they affected me in direct and indirect ways, I started applying that lens to the thing that I covered, which is, you know, the beer industry and craft beer specifically. And I was, you know, the question that I asked myself, I think in 2018 or so, when I wrote this story for uh, Splinter was, where are all the, the craft brewing unions? You know, brewing in this country has a long history of organized labor. Um, the Teamsters represent a lot of workers at uh, macro breweries across the country, but the craft beer industry, because it's so atomized, because it's so sort of fractured as a marketplace, there's 9,000 breweries in the country, whatever. Um, it has not been an organizing target for the labor movement in this country, which has been you know, on its haunches for uh, 40 years, basically ever since 50 years, ever since, uh, you know, Reagan broke the PATCO strike and started the, uh, you know, wealth inequality spiral um, that we're all living through today. So taking some of the big themes that, you
0: know. Uh, Dave, there's, there's a lot of new themes there that many of us haven't thought about. Um, are, is organizing, does it, does it differ state by state or are some states easier to organize in
3: i think so i mean you know to gerard's point like minneapolis and minnesota are you know hotbeds of labor the craft beverage sector in minneapolis is organizing really effectively and thoughtfully you know thinking about that industry together um you know and figuring out like strategies that apply to breweries and distilleries and and craft coffee shops. Um, and you can do that when there's kind of a, uh, a common understanding of the basic mechanics of how organized labor works. Until recently, I was based in South Carolina, which has the lowest labor union density in the country. Um, you know, to the extent that any Americans are class conscious and, you know, uh, understand, um, uh, you know, uh, the dynamics of organized labor, the South is at the back of that line. I mean, for a bunch of reasons that are by design, um, basically dating back to Reconstruction after the Civil War, um, you know, labor in the South has been Aggressively suppressed, and and so yeah, it's much harder to organize in a place like South Carolina than it is in a place like Minnesota or New York or um, you know California, where the ILWU is is uh, still strong there. So yeah, geographically it's definitely different. I mean, I don't want to take anything away from the organizers who do organize in Minneapolis. Like the bottom line is, it's not easy to organize anywhere in the U.S. Um. So it's kind of a it's a race you don't want to win. Um, to be the, the the hardest place to organize in, but certainly if you had to name name a location in the U.S., uh, the southeast would would be it. Um. In terms of the challenges that exist there that are historical and political.
0: Great. Well, that's a great intro. Now back to Pete. So we were at 1872, in the UK. Yeah. Uh. It was it was an interesting time. The the British
4: Empire was at its apex at that point. You know, we owned, I don't know, a third of the world, a quarter of the world, whatever it was. Uh, And the the propaganda was that this was the greatest, richest empire the world had ever seen. And and people in Britain felt like they were part of this. Uh, And when you look at it from a working man's perspective, uh, we had the greatest navy the world had ever seen and the guys in Newcastle had built those ships. Uh, The guys working in the Sheffield steel mills had made the steel that built those ships. The guys in the cloth mills in Lancashire had clothed the workers. The people in Coventry had made the bicycles that those workers went to work. In in, in Yorkshire, where I grew up, we'd mined the coal that powered the furnaces. So everyone felt like they were collectively part of the the greatest empire the world has ever seen. And then they realised that all these great riches, no one was seeing a cent of it. You know, um, working people were, were living in abject poverty. Uh, they were working uh, insane hours. Children were working uh, in mines for twelve-hour uh, shifts uh, every, every day, uh, pulling um, uh, rail trolleys full of full of coal back up to the surface, and. It was like we're not getting our stake here, uh, and so the union movement was was very strong, uh, and the clubs were a big part of that. Uh, Organising uh, where I live now in East London, this was a hotbed of uh, what were then radical clubs, uh, and they would they would get speakers in to talk to men and educate them, uh, all, all that aspect of class consciousness, and and. From the outside, people would say, Well, these guys are just going to this, these clubs, they're getting drunk, they're doing all sorts of obscene things, we need to shut them down. Uh and, and the real thing that was happening was no, we don't like the fact that that Labour is organizing. But but everything that people threw at the clubs and the unions and everything else, they proved the working men proved that they were smart. And and they found ways around new regulations. Uh, they found ways to organize. They found ways to collectivize. Uh, and it's, it's only one aspect of the working men's club story, but it's a hugely important part
0: of it. Yeah, and we're going to walk it back a little bit. Um, was there a difference between pubs and working class clubs?
4: Yes. So, so the pub is it is quite interesting. A pub obviously is shot for public house. Uh, anyone can go in and a private members club by definition is is one where you have to be a member uh, to get in and in order to be a member you would have to be nominated by two existing members uh, and so Legally, the police had no jurisdiction over private members' clubs uh, because of that licensing act I mentioned, uh, and this drove people mad because you could you could regulate pubs, you could go in there, you could close them down, um, and with clubs it was just like we have no idea what these working men are getting up to when when they're in there, <laughs> and we, we, we were we were kind of going through a kind of um, I think Christianity at that point. Was was fairly fundamentalist, uh, and the the church was was saying, well, the people in these clubs are infidels. They're, they're, that's that's a word that they use. You know, we now associate it with with radical Islam, but this is what radical Christianity was calling these people. And they said, you know, they're they're they're, they're satanic, uh, they're evil, uh, they're getting into all kinds of things. And people, go, well, what kind of things? Well, we don't know because we can't get in, <laughs> but it must be bad.
0: Well, wh- wh- why did? Why didn't they proliferate more? Why were there pubs at all? I mean, I I know even now if I'm in my hometown in Massachusetts, I can go into an Elks Club with a member or the Garibaldi Italian Club. I can get $2 beers. (laughs) You know, guys can play cards. Why would I go to a a, a public place at all if I could get drinks that are cheaper um, to begin with?
4: Well, that's absolutely the case here. There, There was no profit motive. Uh, so you could buy beer at the same price as the pubs and sell it more cheaply. And when you did make a profit, uh, that profit went back into the community. They would—they created scholarships for working-class men to go to Oxford University. Uh, they built convalescent homes on the coast for for men who grew old and infirm. They organised trips for children to go to the coast, to the seaside. Uh, and, and they became real huge community assets. And at one point, I think at their peak... Uh, pubs account, sorry, working men's clubs accounted for about twenty percent of all the licensed premises in the UK. Four, four million British people were members of clubs, and they were they, they generated a lot of entertainment. Uh, when when commercial television first appeared in the UK, uh, they went to the clubs and picked the best comedians, the best singers from the clubs, uh, and they formed the basis of our our televised entertainment for about four, forty or fifty years. The problem was they they didn't keep pace. Um, the, the fact that they were exclusive to men became uh, increasingly an issue. Women didn't have equal rights in clubs until 2007. Uh, there were a lot of allegations of, of racist behaviour and colour bars. Uh, and then, when, when leisure started to kind of evolve and adapt and change, and our homes became more comfortable, the clubs just did nothing. They didn't change, they didn't adapt. And so, for about the last 40 years, they've been in, in quite sharp decline.
0: Yeah, maybe half the problem is that people watch TV at home and can drink at home. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, one thing you, the last book you wrote during the pandemic, you know, it, it was called Craft. And I see the connection from Craft to Clubland. I think about a value to our work. You wrote about the carriage maker who yes. knew the ex- exact width of the, the wheels to fit into the grooves on the road that had been... Did did re- researching that book did, did that kind of help you lead the clubland? It really did. Um, I, I I write
4: you know I, I write I, I mix quite a lot of different genres in my writing. Uh, I I look at a lot of history. Uh, I I do a lot of travel. I I do a lot of personal experience. And, and them put quite a lot of memoir into my work, which I, I, I'm not quite sure where it comes from. It just appears there. Um, and what craft did that was a real. The, the book is called Craft and Arguments. And and rather than it being a story, it, it was a polemic. It it was an argument. It was like, I'm going to prove these three things to you. Point one, this, point two, this. And and that's really bled into Clubland because the people who remember working in men's clubs kind of treat them as a little bit of a joke. Uh it's like, oh, in the 1970s, you had chicken in a basket and you watch these dreadful comedians. Uh, and it's all what working class people did, and now we're more aspirational, uh, and now we, we we all want to be middle class, and we all want to be uh, uh, have wear designer label brands and eat sushi and this kind of stuff, and and working class culture is often derided as a as a bit of a joke, and and the idea of the book was to say no this th- there's definitely humour in the story, uh, but you're not laughing at the clubs and the people who went to them, you're you're laughing with them, and. And, and, it's, and there's a very, very serious undertone underneath it, which is that it shaped our culture and, and gave lots of people huge advantages. And thanks to the clubs, working class people got positions in parliament and local councils, local government,
0: things like that for the first time. Wow. it's a great intro. Gerard, you, you sent me a list of uh, U- union breweries that you know of. Want to talk a little bit
2: about that and then how you met Dave? Yeah. I mean, I think the one brewery that everyone talks about that's here in Minneapolis and St. Paul actually is Fair State. And, you know, they unionized in 2019 and are still to this day the smallest union brewery in the country. And I think that fact is actually really interesting. I think it ties in really closely to what Pete was saying with this idea of craft is that, you know, uh, most of the union breweries in the country are large breweries and most of the beer that's made in the U.S. is actually even made but it's made by companies we don't associate with craft because I think the way that this sort of working class mentality mutated in the United States was that it became a mythology and the idea was that you know you're working with your friends your friends are looking out for you you didn't need to formalize things like sick time or paternity leave or even you know uh defined working hours but the Companies that are the largest are the ones that have done the best job i mean with one I can tell you about uh really maintaining waiver through time and like I think there's a there's a scale that is at work here where it's like once a brewery gets to a certain size, you basically need a union in order to operate equitably um and so the beer that I'm drinking today is is not from fair State, although I did just finish a fair state beer um during this, but I'm drinking a shells uh, from the August Shell Brewing Company founded in eighteen sixty second oldest brewery industry. Uh, they've been union for a really, really long time now, I think since the 40s. And, you know, because they're the you know 25th or so largest brewery in the country, the second largest brewery in Minnesota, people don't really see them as a craft brewery. And then they lose some of the cachet that comes along with that. But I think it's an incredibly uh, valuable thing that this is a union made brewery done on a, on a local scale. And this is really what laid the groundwork for other breweries to look and say, Hey, we could do this, you know, and it, for people at Fair State to say, you know, Shell's been doing this for 60 years. Why can't we be a union brewery? So I'm drinking their no, their no frills pills, which is uh, about the most Shell's beer I could have ever asked for a German pilsner And it is, it's delightful. I'll, I'll drink six without taking a breath. Cheers.
0: And Dave, you, 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 just keep talking about unions, man. What, tell us the story of, of one brewery or, distillery that that's on your mind right now um man you know yeah like there's certainly obviously there's always
3: union drives right now we're seeing a lot of momentum actually not in the beer space but in the coffee space uh one of the big stories dominating headlines in the u.s mainstream publications even is uh the wildfire organizing that's happening at various starbucks chains now whether you think starbucks is craft coffee or not um you know their influence on Craft coffee and third wave, coffee and barista culture is undeniable. That's where a lot of uh, you know people who go on to own um, third wave coffee shops, you know, and roasteries and whatever get their get their training. So it's not. I, I I like to think about, and I think it's important to think about. You know, not siloing beer as the liquid, um, but looking at you know, the way an organizer might looking at, you know, who has like, uh, like experiences, like job, you know, roles, um, and tasks that they do and who can make common cause with one another. And I think that's why the organizing in Minneapolis has been so successful is because it's not just brewery workers or distillery workers or coffee workers. It's all of them using the techniques that they have had success with, um, you know, to apply that to their own shops. Um, What Gerard said about, you know, uh, Fair State, I think, you know, Fair Fair State and its workers have done a really good job um, over the course of their union drive and then, you know, their contract negotiations and ratifying their contract um, of of really communicating what that process has been like. And you can't overstate um, the effect that bad education and misinformation about the labor movement has had on. Rank and file workers in this country. I mean, we come up through a school system that dramatically underplays the role of labor. Um, you know, we we don't learn about a lot of labor history. Our our corporate media is is heavily inflected with a pro business you know perspective and framing um, when they cover labor, and and you know they don't always even bother to cover it. Although that is certainly changing. Um, uh, so you know, is as far as. A specific brewery that's on my mind. There, I'm not currently aware of a drive going on at a craft brewery. I could be wrong, or maybe there's one about to start. You never know. I mean, these things have to happen uh, clandestinely at the beginning because even though the U.S. has labor law, um, unfortunately, it's very toothless and it is uh, heavily slanted to um, you know in favor of the employer. So you wind up. Um, you know, seeing people get fired in Atwell states, uh, not for organizing, but for something else, supposedly. Um, So, you know, it's not that there isn't organizing happening. Uh, I'm sure there is. I know there is. Uh, It's just that I'm not sure that there's one currently going on at a brewery. Um, There was a big drive in Nashville at Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery earlier this year that ended up in a a pretty, you know, it was a, it was a big loss. Ultimately, um, the union, they organized with the UFCW, um, and they, you know, were, were wanted to organize the distillery, and they wound up having about eighty percent of union cards signed, which is an indication from the workers that they're, you know, they they want to they want a union. So eighty percent of the workforce said they wanted one. Um, and in the time between going public with the drive and you know the the election being taken, um, because the company refused to voluntarily recognize the union, uh, the company was able to flip uh, that. Ratio pretty substantially. Uh, the vote was, uh, wound up being heavily against the union. Um, you know, losses are tough and they sting, and and you know you, you hate to see it for workers, um, who put their heart and soul into the drives. What those loss and you can't make you know like I don't know the specifics of how they were organizing, um, so I can't speak to whether or not they you know, uh, that's on them. But generally speaking, when you see losses for unions whether it's in the brewing space, the craft beverage space, or just generally, you always have to remember that um, these are massive uphill battles that workers are fighting because the law is against them, because capital is against them. Um, and, you know, it's it's just something that you got to always take with a grain of salt. That doesn't mean a loss isn't a loss. It is, and it sucks, and that's the deal. But, um, you know, when we evaluate the strength of the labor movement, we must also evaluate the ways in which it's been legislatively handicapped over the past half century.
0: Wow! So we're we're talking about things that most people haven't talked about in a long time, and that's Dave Infante, the editor publisher of Its Fingers. We're going to be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right.
1: I'm Chava Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN, here to talk about Eight One Eight Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operated distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as SACRED, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhattan, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly.
0: Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network, Join us and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org. Over 30 shows weekly about food, farming, chefs, drinks, and craft beer and cider on heritageradionetwork.org. So Pete Brown's new book, Clubland, is coming out. Pete, why the joke about chicken in a basket? I want to know, like, you know, you're talking about these work in men's clubs. Uh, what, What were some of the features? You know, do they have special drinks? You know what? What's chicken in a basket? We don't know. We don't know <laughs> the joke. So, um, it's uh, it, it, it kind of goes
4: back to there's a big club called uh, Batley Variety Club, uh, which was about ten miles away from where I grew up, and basically this guy uh, James Corrigan uh, came to Vegas and went to all the Vegas uh, supper clubs, saw how they worked, and said, "I'm going to open a Vegas style." Uh, Las Vegas Strip-style club in the north of England. And all these stars who were so on TV uh, were basically on the doorstep of all these miners and mill workers, and they could go and see them. And the model for how the club worked was uh, the the ticket price was low, um, and the the acts were paid for by the money taken over the bar and uh, and the scale of it... uh, and so all the prices were low, but it was like the sheer numbers of people made it work. So, chicken in a basket was basically some fried chicken and some fries. And you could have chicken in a basket or scampi in a basket. And those were the, t- and it like a, with a basket is a, uh, you know, a, a wicker or a plastic um, basket lined with a couple of, uh, a, a, a couple of pieces of towel, uh, paper towel. And and that's that's the food offering that you get in this club that and, and that is it and you can drink beer and and that is it so it was a very simple economic model uh, that relied on loads and loads of people buying it and it it became a cliche it became a byword for the the simple tastes of the working class. Uh it, it, it became this kind of 1970s thing of, oh, well, we're all beyond that now. We all have much better taste now. And it was kind of demonised. But you know what? It was great. And it was simple. And it, and it worked. And it meant that um, in these really poor uh, industrial towns, we had stars like Shirley Bassey, uh, Eartha Kitt, um, uh, um, oh... <laughs> Roy Orbison, uh, people like this coming to play these northern working class towns um, because of the money that they made from this very simple
0: fair. So you, you said that there was, let's talk about class consciousness. And it, people people had ambition, you know, that they didn't want to just be poor and they wanted to have better lives. How, how is that different from uh, the current generation that, that's like aspirational middle class? I think the big thing is uh, there's, there's a great book by a guy
4: called Richard Hoggetts that was published in 1957. He grew up in um, uh, a suburb of Leeds in the north of England and managed to get a scholarship to a, a good school uh, because he was so bright and became a, a sociology professor and writer. And, and he writes beautifully about in the mid 20th century, the, in working class communities, there was this idea of us and them. And us was people like you, who you knew. Uh, they lived quite by you in the, locally in the, in the streets like yours. You worked in the same factories, all the same mines. You drank in the same pubs and clubs. And anybody who said, you know what, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to do something better. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to improve myself. They were seen as, with, with some suspicion, um, where I was like, oh, is... Is, is, is living in a, a small two-room two, two terrace not good enough for you then, is it? You've got fancy ideas, have you? And, and there was this idea that if you wanted to improve or better yourself in the wrong way, uh, that you were betraying your class identity. And, and one of the things in the book is that's, that's something I was guilty of when I was 18. I thought, I want to get out of this place. I want to be, be middle class. And and the, and the book is kind of partly me reconciling myself with my working-class roots and revisiting that, that thought. So, so yes, there was this sense that we want to get better, that we want to better things for everybody. But in this sense of the unions, it had to be better for everybody. It had to be better collectively. If one person is going to break ranks and say, well, screw you guys, I'm, I'm, I've, got a, I've got an escape route here, then that was seen as a kind of class betrayal. And I, And I think today that sense of us has been replaced by the sense of i uh if we look at a uh, TV commercial advertising um, and, and the, this aspirational sense it's like you're special you're individual you're worth it you're better than everybody else and so we, we, certainly here in our in our post union post industrial britain we we don't have that collective sense of class identity in a, in a very visible practical everyday way um, and it's very much and social media uh really uh enhances this uh, it, it it feeds this sense of narcissism that that it 's all about not what unites me with people like me, but what makes me different and more special than people around me and it's quite toxic i think
0: and then just sports and the, and the role of sports in in all these things um, kind of old school soccer clubs and the fans and and that culture versus the new uh like the rise of the NFL, American football, uh, how, how are those fans different and, and how are people interacting differently? It's,
4: it's, a, it's a great example uh, of a typical story. So uh, actually, you know, so soccer was created as a way to take working class men out of the pub. And, and when it was originally uh, developed, the idea was <laughs> this is it's, it's countless examples of things like this where where, where upper middle class people decide what's best for working men and try to implement it. So the idea of soccer, the way we play it, was well go along and appreciate the the physical and aesthetic beauty of your local club, and of course you get forty thousand working men going from the factory to the game. And they get quite tribal. They start to support their team. And so the team has to start playing to win the game instead of produce beautiful football. Uh, and so it actually encourages this sense of tribalism, the sense of class identity. And so all, all the all the kind of big uh, philanthropists, some of them well-meaning, some of them not, go, no, you weren't supposed to enjoy football like this. <laughs> you were supposed to enjoy it the way we wanted you to enjoy it. Um and but it was it was seen as a very working class pursuit. It was looked down upon. It had no intellectual worth. All these kind of th- footballers were stupid. All these kind of stereotypes. Um, and then, in particular, in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties, it got hit with this big problem of of, of football related violence, and and the the English uh, internationally have a dreadful reputation for going to other countries and creating, uh, you know, rioting, creating violence and stuff. The British press goes along to these things and buys drinks for, for football fans to get them drunk and goad <laughs> them into violence so that they, they can then splash it across the newspapers and say, look at these thugs. Um, and in the early 90s, a, a mid-class writer called Nick Hornby wrote a book called Fever Pitch, and said, actually, football's really great. It, it is this, this physical uh, beauty. It is it is an aesthetic pursuit. And he supported Arsenal <laughs> and in North London, the nearest football club to me. And suddenly all these middle-class people start going to Arsenal to, to watch the game. Isn't the footy great? Isn't it wonderful? It's great. And then we got the Premier, Premier League, and suddenly football wasn't a working-class pursuit anymore. Working-class people can now no longer afford to get into football games uh oh and it 's the- exactly the same with with um baseball in the states it's it's you know if uh, so many of the tickets some of these seats are kind of corporate seats uh with corporations taking their clients along uh and there's this there's this phrase of you know we 're not allowed to have anything nice if working class culture produces something that does have broader worth then it's kind of the middle class people go well we 'll have that thank you very much we'll take that from you
0: Wow man, this is going deep. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Gerard uh you know I'm gonna go back to you Fair State you told me about fair State um wow it, sometimes I feel like we don't know anything <laughs> I mean I, I want to drink my beer um but I, I I feel like this is an eye-opening conversation thank you Gerard
2: <laughs> yeah I mean I, absolutely I uh I think there's there's so many ways we can go. I think we've definitely gone really wide on the topic, but I, I think the point of, of class consciousness is really, really important. And and I think what Fair State has done is they've really shown people that you can organize and you can be a labor-friendly organization. You can be, there can be a management team that openly accepts the union bit of its employees and there is actually no negative effect on the consumer, which is what everyone says, you know, I spend probably too much time on the Nextdoor app, and you see people every time there's a, a a Starbucks unionization, people get on there saying, well, this is the end of Starbucks. You know, the coffee is going to be $15 and whatever. And I think people just don't really understand anymore. What so
0: what are the key things that people want? Because you think about – you hear about, like, just proper schedule or, you know – I mean, pay and benefits are one thing. Actually, my daughter goes to college in Iowa at Grinnell College, and this, the student workers there actually – that just formed the first all college
2: student union. Um, So there's a lot to learn. I mean, that's another really big arena for that. You see it happen with grad students a lot too. And I think a lot of that is, you know, academia is super primed for uh, uh, abuse of power. It happens left and right. And I think the number one thing that anyone who's in a union wants is protection from retaliation. You know, and these are people, you know, I talked to very recently for uh, Good Beer Hunting, I talked to two of the union stewards for Fair State, uh, Alicia Byrd and Ian Sutherland, and they both told me, you know, that I've been working in hospitality my entire life. And there was never a situation where you could go to management and say that this person came in and made me uncomfortable and feel confident in that because that person might be a friend of the owner. You know, it was just like, it was a a situation that is primed for harassment and that having the union protection means that you can't be retaliated against for coming forward, to for speaking out, for, you know, saying, you know, it's not fair that we're treated this way. And in this sort of reckoning that happened uh, last year, so many of the abuses were like, you know, people who are friends with ownership and are nice to the manager. And yeah, they might be groping the bartenders at night, but there's nothing you can do to stop that. Well, all of a sudden you have a structure that can help solve that issue. And it's a structure that looks after itself. It is free of the influence and separate uh, from management, but it doesn't, it is by nature confrontational, sure, but it is not an unproductive confrontation. The confrontation is always productive. And I think that we as consumers, we should take our class consciousness and we should demand that of the things that we consume. And, you know, I think looking at Amazon and saying, you know, we don't want Amazon to unionize views. We don't want our goods to get more expensive. That is like a, a crazy line of thinking we should be able to have both. And I, so that's why I think, you know, convenience and, and ease. And back to what Pete was saying, this sort of individual prosperity, you know, thinking, I need to be able to maximize what little money I have. Therefore, I can't support a business that's going to properly compensate their workers is is it's an illusory thing. It doesn't make any sense because the issue is not that these companies aren't making enough money to pay their workers, is that there's no structure that's holding them accountable. So I think when you've proven on a very small scale in a brewery the size of Fair State. Uh, or in, you know, at Grinnell College, it is, uh, it's very, very productive for people to see that functioning effectively and working for everybody, except for executive leeches.
0: So, yeah, union's a little different than
2: just talking about increasing the minimum wage then. I mean, that's certainly part of it. And I I think like you said, Jimmy, like fairness in your schedule, um, it just, that's all there, but it it's done within, you know, those things can exist outside of unions, but within any union structure, you're so much more protected. And I think the reason why we're seeing it come to this precipice, you know, intrinsically related to the COVID pandemic, where you have places saying, yeah, you're shit out of luck for a job. Sorry, go, you know, go find it regardless of years of service, what you have contributed, you know, the the turnover in the hospitality industry is such that people always thought it was not necessary to give people the tools to make a career out of it, which is, it doesn't make any sense. You know, we, society persists on the work of working class people. So therefore you need to make these jobs such that they can be a career. And it's it's not a sustainable model to have people turning in and out of these jobs and have this mythology that you only work as a waitress or a bartender so that you can transition into uh, a middle-class and then upper-class job. It's just not the way yeah, the world I mean, so
0: Service and hospitality is an, an important job. You know, we all, we all know what it is and we get it. <clears throat> and we don't get it, we, we're disappointed. So I guess this is the right track. Hey Dave, you, you did a cool interview. Um, so th- there's actually a woman who's regularly writing about unions for, for teens. <laughs> sort of,
3: yeah, Kim <laughs> Kelly. I like that description. <laughs> I like the idea uh, that that's like her sole gig in it. I, you know, it's it's a predominant gig for her. Kim Kelly is a uh, independent journalist and a new author of a book called Fight Like Hell, which I highly recommend. I read it, I enjoyed it. I recently had her on the Fingers podcast. Uh, what you're referring to, Jimmy, is she's a columnist at Teen Vogue, um, where she writes about the labor movement. Uh, she's also been published at the Nation, uh, the Real News. Um, New Republic, I think, in the past. She used to be a correspondent for NPR. She'd been all over the uh, the map as a, as a freelance journalist. She actually also, prior to the labor movement, covered the uh, the heavy metal uh, space. So she was a music journalist prior to this. But she, she got into labor over the course of the past five years or so. Kim's great. We had a really um, interesting conversation about uh, her experience researching some of the lesser known or, or you know lesser you know covered facets of the American labor movement. Certainly, this stuff has been um, written about academically, but you know as I mentioned before, it's very difficult to get labor education into the mainstream uh, discourse in America. So Kim's book, I think, is a great um, kind of uh, way to smuggle that conversation into the mainstream, and I wish her the most. Success with it, Um, you know. I I think like the thing with with journalism about labor and with the work that Kim does is that it's so essential to connect it to issues that resonate not just with um, you know the choir that you're preaching to, but resonate with people outside of the labor movement, people who are skeptical of unions, people who maybe have had you know misinformation fed to them about unions. I mean, Gerard is um, you know, right on with a lot of his points. And and I think, you know, those points that he's made and that I've made and that Pete's made, like those resonate certainly with people who are familiar with the movement. But you also have a vast majority of people in this country who uh either are neutral on the issue or are actively hostile to American labor uh organized labor I mean and part of that's because of the atomization that uh that Pete described and you can blame you know technology you can blame social media you can blame uh uh you know private equity um coming in and scooping up businesses and tearing them apart and you know ruining towns and all that shit it's all involved for sure um and you know I don't think the labor movement is the only antidote to that problem but I do believe it's a part of it But to get there, you have to have these conversations with people who are not convinced. You have to preach to the unconverted, right? And, you know, work like... The 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 book that Kim has published work like um, you know uh, uh, the journalistic coverage um, that is being produced of advice, which has a really good uh, pair of reporters on the labor beat, and I'm blanking on both of the names right now. Shame on me. Um, Dave Jamieson at Huffington Post, Stephen Greenhouse, a longtime New York Times labor reporter who is now independent. Um, this stuff injects this conversation into the mainstream and the reason I like covering this from the beer angle is beer is something that everyone, well, most people at least are familiar with. And most people have, again, I guess not everyone, but most people have positive opinions of people have this emotional connection to the product, right? Like, you know, you drink beer when you're happy, you drink beer when you're sad. It's a it's a cause for celebration, a cause for solace. And taking that emotional connection to the product And taking it one step further in understanding who the people are that make it is partly what the the original pitch of craft beer was, right? Like that's that is not a foreign concept in the American craft beer world. I mean that was partly the way they differentiated themselves from the macro brewers in the eighties and nineties, right. It's like, you don't want a corporation making your beer. You want the guy down the street to make your beer. Um, You know, we're, we're better. We're uh, we, we care about the environment. We care about the community, et cetera, et cetera. There's a way to take that message, which I think at, at, you know, it's, at its core, at its outset was mostly true, whether it's true now, you know, across 9,000 breweries, I'm a little bit more skeptical, but there's a way to take that message and layer on the conversation about labor, right? I mean, labor is people who work in the community. Labor is people who care about the, the product that they're, that they're canning and, and sending to market. So getting that conversation in the mainstream requires work by journalists, work by organizers, and it also requires, you know, looking for the right avenues to have that discussion. And I do think that beer is one of them.
0: Great. And Dave, uh, there's a beer I'm supposed to ask you about, so you can mention one beer.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I wanted to shout out Industrial Arts, Metric Pils. Uh Industrial Arts is up in, I think they're in Suffern, New York. They're in, they're in kind of like Rockland County area in New York. And I've been drinking a lot of their beer lately. I just think it's a really terrific Pilsner. And not to be, you know, the fucking beer Twitter guy who's like ranting and raving about how no one appreciates pilsners, but I do appreciate pilsners. <laughs> I enjoy it quite a bit, and uh, and and I highly encourage you if you can find it at
0: your local shop to go pick some up because it's real good. All right, now Pete. So in Clubland, you know, what, what were some of the beers that that people were drinking at the, at the, these work? I want to call them service clubs, but they're working class clubs.
4: Yeah, service clubs were a subset of and they were kind of part of that uh, broader movement. Um, the, the beers got a notorious reputation. Um, so at the time the clubs were really growing, uh, the brewers in the UK owned most of the pubs. Uh, they were tied pubs. And so on the one hand, they saw clubs as a threat uh, to their business, but on the other hand, they they were a, a potential new market. So they had this ambivalent idea about clubs. But clubs were always back of the queue. And so the, the club men would do what they did with everything and say, well, if people are going to mess us around, we're just going to do it ourselves. So the clubs started to open their own breweries. Uh, there's this, uh, this brewery called the Federation Brewery that was in Newcastle upon Tyne. And they used to brew this beer in huge quantities and sell it to the clubs. The clubs had massive tanks in the cellar and the beer would arrive in in industrial tankers and just get piped into these huge tanks and and then it would just go out over the bar i, f- I found this wonderful quote so Barnsley, the town where i grew up was a big coal mining town uh, and this guy goes in uh from another town <clears throat> and he he's sitting in the club main main bar and he thinks the barman's having some kind of breakdown, because this guy's the only guy in there, and the barman's just pouring pints of beer and lining them up on the bar, until there's a hundred pints of beer on the bar, <laughs> and it's and still going. Um, and then the whistle at the at the pit goes, and thirty seconds later, a hundred miners storming through the door. They they go to the bar. They, they've been down in the coal mine. The are all down their throats. They each pick up a pint, down it in five seconds. Slam the glass back down and and bugger off again out of the bar. <laughs> so it's like it was it was it was part of industry. It was part of the lifestyle. Um, it, it was kind of the the right of people to get to get this cheap beer. It's got a bad reputation, uh, but when you go back through the through the books, this beer won a lot of awards uh, in the seventies and eighties. So I think it was pretty decent beer.
0: So Federation, and then did they only have that beer in the clubs, or were there? not not Different exclusively
4: beers. but that's like chicken in a basket it's kind of the notorious thing that everyone remembers about clubs but um the beers would be traditional british bitter um you know brown malty 4% uh, it, was, it was designed for being able to drink in large quantities. You know, I, I was just talking to someone today about session beer uh, and the, the American need to define what session beer is in terms of ABV and style and that kind of thing. Uh, to, to a British pub or club goer, session beer was any beer that you can drink a lot of in a, in a session, <laughs> um, whatever strength it is. Yeah, it's probably going to be a low-strength beer. But we have this pint culture, uh, especially in working-class areas. And when I was 18, uh, back in the, in the 1980s, there there was this idea that a proper drinker was someone who could drink 10 pints of beer and then walk home in a straight line uh it, it being a a working class man was about being able to drink a lot of alcohol but hold it and 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 be in charge of it um you you can pick you can pick um you, you can, you can it, that's definitely a problematic attitude now i think but uh, it's it's certainly the one i grew up with
0: and uh, a proper pint. What what was the size of a proper pint? Yeah, so we have a slightly different pint than you
4: guys. Your your pint is sixteen ounces. Uh, our pint is twenty ounces. So
0: and it's a finer glass too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Wow. You know, th- th- this is really going a lot deeper than I thought. I'm I'm going to go back to some social messaging <laughs> since we're all drinking. I, I'm drinking a. Um, what the hell am I drinking now? I can't even remember. I've been drinking uh, Exhibit A Brewing out of uh, Framingham, Massachusetts, because um, I like their attention to detail, and I think they do a really nice job of uh, working with their staff. But the beer is damn good. It's called Danko. It was limited, uh, made from some Danko rye that my friend, Tor Esner, up in Finger Lakes, New York, raises as a specialty grain. Um, So veterans, you know, working class culture in America, and Pete, you might have something to say about this. It still exists, and I'll tell you when I when I see it, especially when I'm in like working in middle class areas. The veteran culture in America is amazing. You know, I was at a comedy show the other night, and the comics all I wanted to call out who's a veteran, and then they asked them to say where they served, and I feel like the commonness of veterans, many of whom are working and mi- middle class people, because of that's who goes to the military often. Um, that seems like it it echoes what a union membership would have been in the old days. Does anyone want to run with that? I just thought of it this minute. So, you don't know if you know what I'm talking about, Pete. Gerard or or Dave? I don't know if I quite follow, Jimmy. Okay. like okay, It's more like there's a lot of veterans in this country who served together and they have a commonality, but many of them are working class people because that's often who goes into the military. And when they get out and they're older it's still something that ties them together and there are clubs like vfw's and am vets that that welcome them but there is a commonality and i and I, i'm trying to see is there any other commonality that people have in this country without a union you know, sometimes it's, it's you You like the same sports team, but that's not the same. Right.
3: I, I, I think I understand what you're saying. I mean, yeah, like organizing can take take place along other trajectories besides labor, right? Like you can make content common cause outside of the context of work and certainly something like, you know, all serving in the military together um, might give you a good – you know, kind of like fecund, like target for organizing, but it would be organizing with a cause in mind, right? You don't just organize for the sake of organizing. Um, typically what motivates people to make common cause with one another to take action is something to take action against. I mean, you see that to some extent in this country um, with, you know, veterans who I'm thinking of one is like veterans who showed up at Standing Rock, um, to, you know, aid the indigenous peoples in protesting the Keystone XL pipeline a few years ago. Um, there are various veterans organizations designed to put pressure on um, lawmakers to pass you know, reforms for the, the VA. Like it's not that organizing doesn't happen amongst veterans. And certainly your point about the working class being, you know, overrepresented in the American military is I think it's an important thing to know, and a lot of the reason for that is because we, as a country, uh, have you know tied health insurance and have tied education um, to you know uh, the best way for someone without prospects or economic means to get those things is to join the military, which I think is fairly sinister, personally. But it's yeah, it's it, certainly there can be organizing in outside of the context of work, there can also be organizing in, you know, community neighborhood organizing and uh, organizing along religious lines. I mean, we're seeing the probable repeal of Roe versus Wade. And and that is the fruition of a, what, half century of um, frenzied organizing uh, amongst uh, the religious right in, in the US. So it's, labor is not the only thing that um can, you know, underpin organizing. It's it's about making common cause and labor just happens to be something that a lot of people have in common.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Dave, I, I would say the area where those overlap, like between, you know, the solidarity of the military, the solidarity of the working classes, and class stability and class mobility, right? And both options, you know, working in a, a solid union that can, you know, provide for you for years or going to the military, the idea is that you can get the benefits that you need to carry you through a life and raise a family and give you what you need and maybe even potentially ascend, get the skills that you need to get out of your station in life. You know, my dad my grandfather was was an army ranger and, and my dad was a, a union elevator tech and worked at the wonder bread factory. And, you know, my grandpa wanted my dad to never have to go into the military. So he went in the military and my dad wanted me to never have to work in a factory. So he worked in the factory. And like, I think that's where you get the crossover and it's the the promise of social mobility. Although I think in a lot of cases it's, it's proven to not work in the way that we have mythologized in the past
0: yeah well that that thank you for running with that i just wanted to throw that out there and then pete back to you um when we last talked in the fall we were you know talking about hr issues and you brought up unions so tell us about unions in in the uk um and any interaction you know between them and the the, the working clubs yeah, it was um so I've
4: the, the unions and the working men's clubs were kind of parallel um movements for, for working class people to organize and, and get together. And and there's there's so much crossover between them. There was an interesting difference, which is that um the unions obviously started off from a I I mean this is no criticism of unions whatsoever, but they start off as a, having an antagonistic position with capital. It was like, in order for us to gain rights, you need to lose something. If you're going to pay us more, it's going to cost you more. And, and with the entire power of the state vested against them, uh, until the 1870s, you could be uh, around the 19, around the 1830s. You, you could be imprisoned for for trying to be a member of a union for trying to unionize, uh, and it wasn't until the 1880s that unions were recognised legally uh, under, under under British law. And and the thing about the workers' club movement was it was organised by a uh, a well-meaning middle-class uh, clergyman. And he worked with the establishment and he made it quite a fashionable cause uh, and that actually served them very well. So for for a little while, unions um, performed a lot better than, sorry, for a little while, well, the clubs performed a lot better than the unions because they had a little bit more establishment approval than the unions did. But but both reached their peak at the same time. I grew up uh, in the coal mining fields, as I said, the National Union of Mine Workers was the most dominant union in the country, uh, and and going back to what I think Dave was talking about earlier, uh, at the time Reagan smashed the unions in the in the states. Of course, uh, his best buddy Margaret Thatcher was was doing exactly the same thing uh, in the UK, and she precipitated uh, a a miners' strike, and and if the miners had won that, it would have brought down the conservative government. Uh, So she planned it. She stockpiled coal. She she brought in coal that was mined basically under slavery conditions from apartheid South Africa. Uh, She had uh, the police basically doing stop and search um, of of miners. Our movement restricted. People were people being spied on. Mail was being intercepted. Uh, A friend of mine, well, not a friend, but a, a guy I was at school with. We knew that he joined the army. Uh, and he was spotted on picket lines during the strike, dressed as a policeman. So, so the army was being <laughs> drafted in to, to masquerade as police, uh, and the unions were shattered. At pretty much the same time, the the, the clubs went into decline. So, when, when the union's power was broken, uh, industry uh, disappeared. Uh, you no longer have that cohesive, collective sense of of community, and so people stopped going to the clubs. Uh, and the clubs, the decline of clubs, uh, pretty much mirrors the the decline of of the unions. And it's if you look at clubs as the kind of social aspect and unions as the work aspect, it was it was a, a, a very close parallel between the two. Wow,
0: well, that's a great intro. And I know Clubland's coming out still in June. I've got my pre order in, and I can't cannot wait to to read it. Thank you very much. It's a, it's an extraordinary
4: story because it started off with. Oh yeah this thing about the licensing act and the, the the chicken in the basket and the and the cheap beer and the and the uh the 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 famous acts that played there and the more I dug into it, the more this story became a story of working class self definition working class emancipation uh and and that's why I think it ties in really nicely with the conversation we've been having about unions
0: Well, th- thanks so much and and it does resonate in this country like from what we talked about last time gerard i, I I do know these clubs, the Italian Club, the Elks Club, that, that are they started as working people's clubs, and they've evolved, and, and the clubs still own the, their properties, you know, in, in cities and other places. Um, big thanks to everybody. I, I've got a story about unions. Um, a, a friend of mine who is older, and he has a PhD. Uh, he started off 100 years ago. His grandfather was a Cuban immigrant and he worked in a cigar factory that was a union uh, or at least had good conditions in uh, New York City and he just said what was great about it is they also they had paid readers who who would sit while while the workers were rolling cigars they'd read them the news and literature um which which seems like when you think about what a union should be it it seems like it's about giving you a decent decent work condition. so Thanks so much for enlightening us, Gerard, um, right, for Good Beer Hunting and other things, and Dave Infante, editor and publisher of Its Fingers, of which I am a subscriber. Thank you, Dave. And Pete Brown, author of Clubland. You guys have been great. Last words from anybody, or we're going to sign off? Get yourself a union beer.
3: Yeah, get a union beer, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. All right. And you got a list up there, too, so... Thanks so much, guys. We'll catch you next time. Thanks to Armin, our engineer, and Alex, our producing intern. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. All right, guys. Woo! Thank you. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradio.network.org/slash subscribe.